Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, where each and every day we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard adventure film, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm one of the other hosts. My name is Chris Henry of the EAA uh, Aviation Museum. And we have a guest today, our first, our very first guest of the entire show. Oh, really? A very I'm the, I'm the familiar first guest ever? Yes. Very fr- yeah. Oh. <laughs> we saved oh, this spot excellent. for you, and uh, I'll, I'll let you introduce uh, mystery guest. Please enter and sign in, please. <laughs> mystery guest. I'm Joe Garagiola. And <laughs> will the real Chris Henry please stand up? Uh, well, as, uh, as you both know, uh, my name is Hal, Hal Bryan, and I'm an airplane nerd from the Experimental Aircraft Association here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and uh, former co-host with Jim O'Kane, well, once and future co-host, because we've got some other episodes planned of uh, the Rocketeer Minute. But uh, it's very cool here to be talking uh, astronauts and space stuff, even though it's a little bit like uh, my ex-husband remarried a young trophy wife, and the two of them are having me over for dinner. <laughs> I've been called a lot of things. Yeah. The first time I've ever been called a trophy wife. <laughs> Get used to it, sailor. <laughs> How's that chicken fricassee doing? Yeah. Uh, so uh, we are we are in the middle of uh, well, we we're just we we're just watching the Apollo One crew uh, getting uh, loaded into their Block One spacecraft, and uh, all sorts of terrible things are about to ensue. So it's um, it, this this movie opens with a really um, tough tough scene, and um, it, yeah, and you know, I I'd forgotten that uh, that right out of the gate. Uh, they put us back through Apollo One, and uh, and the fire, and and uh, man, and, and of course that you know, you got the soothing tones of Walter Cronkite, sort of yeah. smoothing things out, but uh, but that's that's kind of brutal just to dive in, dive in like that, but it works. Yeah, it's uh, you know you get the, the James Horner strings all playing in there, and uh, we kind of know. I, you know, one of the downsides of this movie, and I, I don't know if this is a general feeling, but one of the downsides of this movie is for people who don't know the space program. It, from from watching this movie, you'd think uh, the uh, the whole space program started with a fire, and ended with people almost dying in space, and and you know, in between there were some off camera shots of oh, that was Neil Armstrong on the moon, and I, I kind of worry about this kind of reader's digest version of of the history of the space program you know it it obviously came out later but uh and it's something sure chris and i have talked about on on our other show quite a bit but from the earth to the moon the hbo miniseries is sort of required viewing and and you plug apollo 13 in you know at the appropriate spot to give you the, at least a broader look at the apollo program if if uh, if not so much mercury and uh, and gemini yeah, I, I agree. That's actually how I watch it when I'm watching the series. Is we'll yeah. uh, we'll plug in Apollo 13 on that uh, uh, for the Apollo 13 episode since they kind of went a different way with it. Yeah, that's and, sort um, of soap opery episode that they have on the on the show. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah, it. Uh, you're you're very right though. If you don't know anything about the space program, you think that the whole thing started with the fire and and honesty. I mean, up until the fire, we really didn't know failure in our space program as far as 
our manned missions. I mean, the closest we ever came was Gus losing his uh, his capsule and, uh, after splash down on Mercury. Yeah, the hatch was just blue. It just, it just yeah, it was a glitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's just yeah, and and that indirectly being responsible for having these fellows getting stuck in their ship because it, the, the redesign insisted on it was you know there was no easy way to blow the hatch on this thing. There were there were three hatches basically on you know on top of each other to uh, to get into the uh, the command module. One of the other things they don't really cover on this is how how compressed the the history was the timeline just before. Apollo, when we were in Apollo 1, we had the Gemini program, which was 20 men, or 20, you know, a total of 20 passengers going up and down into orbit in 20 months. And this, this accident, the Apollo 1 accident happening the third week of January, that's mere weeks after uh, Jim Lovell and Buzz Aldrin had been finishing up uh, Gemini 12, which was around, I think, around Veterans Day of the previous year. So you got through Christmas and all of a sudden, into, you know, you, you take a Christmas break and all of a sudden you're into Apollo. So it just a, it's a very tight timetable when all these things were happening. Absolutely. And you, know, you think about the fact that you were you were still closing out Gemini and starting Apollo sort of at the same time. You know, really. I mean, they were they were flying their last Gemini flight, and already, you know, they've, they're working on training for Apollo. I couldn't imagine what the it had to have been pretty chaotic at NASA at that time, and among the you know the people like Grumman and and uh, um, North American to just see these big switchovers happening. Yeah, with completely different companies. I mean, at, at the time, McDonnell Douglas had built both Mercury and Gemini, and they had this massive background on how, how ships worked in space. And then North American Rockwell comes in with an entirely different ship, you know, all the way, and, and nothing in it is like a learned event from Gemini. We should do this or we should do that. There was no time to include uh, lessons learned from Gemini to, to build this Apollo 1, Block 1 spacecraft. Let's let's talk a little bit about the, uh, we keep saying, saying Block 1. The the Block 1 spacecraft, this this original version, was not built to uh, to handle a lunar module. In fact, it was it was designed before there was the idea of a lunar orbit rendezvous. So this ship was going to either land on the back of a really big lander or they would somehow transfer to a, a lunar excursion module by climbing outside the ship and then walking over to it and getting in. So it... It's really not. This was designed around 1963, that, that, so the technology there is basically coming up about the same time as uh, uh, Gordon Cooper's Faith Seven mission. This is a you know it, it's it's another type of technology, and it was as you know anybody who's read any of the literature about Apollo One, a very glitchy spacecraft, um, and the North American people were fighting about it. NASA was fighting about it. The astronauts were fighting about it. So this was a very contentious spacecraft. Jim, I was just looking. Um, I, I wish I would have thought to uh, to check this out before uh, before the episode. So now I'm sitting here talking slowly while scrolling through the web. Um, there's a company up in uh, Burlington, Canada called Apogee Books, uh, and they publish a lot of great space yeah. titles. Do you, do you know them? Yes, they're great. They're oh. really they, they have they have books as varied as. Uh, uh, Soyuz spacecraft to uh, the dinosaur program, right? And they they did one fairly recently, and I was just what I was looking for was trying to find the exact title of it because it there is one where the, it documents yes the the lunar exploration scrapbook, 
So for anybody out there who's interested in this stuff and hasn't uh, doesn't have a copy of it, I highly recommend it. It basically documents uh, every uh, sort of alternate design, every proposal, uh, you know, every vehicle that either was built or considered uh, for the Apollo program. So you've got, I'm looking at its uh, page here, 80 lunar landers, 80 different rovers, wow. 50 different lunar flying vehicles, you know, from wow. designed from 38 to 72. Um, so they just did a uh, uh, did an absolutely exhaustive exhaustive job on this guy named uh, well it's Robert Godwin he's the the head of oh, Apogee yeah. Books and real good guy too if you get a chance to meet him so anyway I'm not trying to shill for the that company but looking at their site looks like they've got a limited edition hardcover directly from them otherwise there's there's versions available on Amazon so check out the Lunar Exploration Scrapbook. Okay, and if I were a, a helpful and prepared guest, I would have the book in front of me and would have memorized salient facts <laughs> and sounded smart <laughs> during this interview. Well, I, it's wow. like I know once again, we, and I'm sure I guess at several points in this we're going to be kicking back to, to from the Earth to the Moon. I guess like you said, Hal, it's going to be required watching to, for this as well. But um, I love the how they, they filmed the Lunar Module episode where they show you what the LEM was going to look like how Grumman thought it would look. And then throughout the, the design phases and changes that NASA implemented in the, the missions, how they influenced the design, you know, by the end of it, the LEM looked nothing like what they had originally started with and the thought the thing would do. Yeah, and I think that was, that was one of the major problems with these Block 1 spacecraft was that they they didn't make those changes. They just said, well, let's get this up and running, and then we can fix it in the block, too. We'll just see how it works to get three guys into space. I was just going to say, Jim, you, so you mentioned that the, this block one was designed at a point when uh, they weren't even necessarily planning on uh, lunar orbit rendezvous, if, I, if I'd heard you right. Was, right, yeah. Where was, at the time that this would have been designed, and maybe it's a good question for both of you since... Uh, you know, since I'm the guest and I'm asking the questions, <laughs> where was uh, this all this process happening with respect to the the debates about uh, you know building sort of an Earth orbit space station and going from there versus the you know everything's expendable but the very tip of the Saturn V uh, approach that we ended up taking had, had those arguments already been resolved by that, that point? That was in the middle. I'd say about by somewhere between August and October of 1962. Uh, NASA started, you know, looking at lunar orbit rendezvous as the way to do it rather than direct descent where they just, you know, shove a big capsule up onto the moon and then make the capsule take off from the moon. Uh, but, uh, yeah, get, getting getting down to the lunar excursion module was almost just before uh, uh, Grumman was given the, uh, the go-ahead, which I think was at the beginning of 63. I may be wrong on that, but... Uh, but yeah, it was it was shortly thereafter. That's when Grumman won the won the contract for it. And you know, it's it's like the Apollo Moon mission was they didn't they didn't really have an idea of what they were going to do the last fifty miles. Um, but they knew that they needed something that three people were going to have to go up. And, uh, and isn't, isn't that amazing? Before. A quarter million mile journey in the in the last fifty <laughs> are the that's the big uh, the big variable. I still like um, the idea of just just get them up there and we'll pick them up later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's you know if we can get you there, we can totally figure out a way to get you back. It'll yeah. be fine. Yeah, of course um, you got to remember that that's when uh, high hopes was a hit. <laughs> yes, yeah, high apple pie in the sky. Yeah. Um, you know, one other just totally random thing I've got to I've got to call out because uh, because I catch myself vacillating back and forth so much when we talk about 
the U.S. space program. You've got Mercury. Uh, then you've got the, the next one. And um, normally, if I'm talking about the astrological sign, which I never have any reason to do whatsoever at all, I would say Gemini. And then a lot of times I would say sort of Gemini kind of generically referring to the program. But when I'm, you know, when I want to feel a little cooler and feel a little bit like an astronaut, then I'll say Gemini. And then I'll have a crisis of confidence and then I'm back to Gemini again. But I don't know what it is, but that's always what's one of those little key differentiators. It's like when you hear somebody say Gemini, you just you feel like they're involved somehow. You know, they they, they get it. They know, um, you know, what it is. And so, like I said, for me, it's just you'll just hear it both ways out of me, which is unusual for me. I actually asked uh, I asked Frank Borman about that once. And I said, what is the proper pronunciation of, of Gemini, Gemini? And uh, he said, uh, I always said Gemini. I think that's how I pronounce Gemini. <laughs> so that was the answer I got. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I, I guess well, it was... <laughs> forever unresolved. Yeah, exactly. Gemini had had such a... It looked like a cool spaceship. It looked like a, a little fighter plane. And it just... It seemed like the coolest thing to fly. When you build the Ravel kits, and Chris, I'm sure you've built a Ravel Gemini uh, spacecraft. Oh yeah, there's, there's, I think I think there's three plastic model nerds on this. Uh, yeah. Today, so. <laughs> yeah, I think there might be four, and there's only three of us. I think yeah. there's, <laughs> there's enough nerdism to go yeah. around. Just trying to get the get the glue right on the four retro rocket uh, tanks that are in the retro module, and you just get it just right, and you you keep checking the back of the box saying, "Is that the right color red?" It it, it just it felt. It felt like the kind of a ship that you wanted to fly. Apollo, Apollo is something that you hold in your hand, but Gemini is a—it's a model that you hold to make vroom vroom noises with. It's so—it's <laughs> it's just. Or you would if, it, yeah. if you weren't in the vacuum of space. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because in space, nobody in can hear you vroom vroom. Yeah. <laughs> Let's face it. Um, there, there is kind of a shorthand here on the scene with the uh, with the fire in Apollo One. Um, for one thing, apparently, uh, the Apollo one spacecraft was not on its side with people sitting upright this, uh, more properly, they'd be all flat on their backs doing a test. There weren't sparks flying out when, uh, Gus pressed the button. That was not the way that the fire started. The fire started kind of at Gus's feet as, you know, as anybody who's studied this, uh, uh, this terrible accident, it's the, High pressure oxygen environment that made it turn into basically a firebomb that uh, increased the the internal pressure. And of course, since the uh, the hatch was o- opened inward, you couldn't push the hatch inward enough to uh, to pull it out. So there was no way that ground crews could uh, rescue them. You know, one comment about your the what you said about the orientation, Jim, at the very very start of this minute. I'm talking, you know, yeah, uh, the door second zero one and the the door. I doesn't that look like that looks to me like they are sort of sitting flat on their backs and that we just go yeah. to their orientation once we're inside yeah i i agree but i'd so. still I'd, I'd still put them on their backs but sure you know, you'd still you'd, i'm not still, i'm not ron howard so he, he knows how to make movies better oh than i'm sorry I, I was told that i would be on this with ron howard is that <laughs> yeah. not is that not happening he's next uh, week you know. he's oh, still, yeah, see. yeah he had a he had an important lunch date to go to so but hey uh-huh. he'll be he'll be back i'm sure and express his <laughs> well, I, I think uh, something else to also note it is uh, when they when they did the investigation, um, you know, after the fire, and they finally got the hatch open, the crew 
basically passed away doing their jobs till the end. Uh, they were found right in the positions that they were supposed to be in, trying to, right as the checklist would have stated, doing what they were doing to try to open the hatch. And I always thought that was kind of amazing that the crew right till the end, I mean, engulfed in fire, was still doing what they were supposed to be doing through the checklist to try to open that hatch and get out of there. And, I mean, we know now that there's no way that hatch would have ever opened. Still, it's just, uh, just a true testament to the bravery of those guys that right up to the end they were doing what they were supposed to do. Yeah, yeah, de- definitely uh, the the kind of people that you'd want in that situation in any kind of an emergency. I mean, it, their their loss was, was incomparable in the space program. Who, you know, who knows what uh what other accomplishments they would have had in space the only good if that's a possible thing to do it's to to say the only good uh, benefit that came out of this was that it happened on the ground and and it was researchable to find out i mean this could have happened in orbit even under partial pressure in an oxygen environment Uh, you could have a runaway fire and then we'd never know what happened through the investigation that followed in the uh, in the continuing you know year-long process of of taking apart the uh uh, the Apollo One spacecraft, comparing it with a comp with, with another model of the same Block One uh, type, and taking every piece of it apart to find out what went wrong, uh, what was uh, what was poorly assembled, what uh, what mistakes were made in design that people overlooked. Uh, I don't think a moon landing would have been possible, except for the kind of investigation that went through on Apollo One. Well, and 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 how you may have been here for. Uh, when when Frank uh, Borman was here to to talk for Space Day, he, you know, he gave this talk that they, I mean, they kind of depict a little bit of it in From the Earth to the Moon, but um, somebody asked him what the guys were like, what the Apollo 1 crew was like, and he gave almost word-for-word description of the crew, which to me was amazing. Uh, as depicted in that series, he uh, talked about uh, Gus Grissom and his sense of humor. Uh, at one point, hanging a lemon from the uh, from the command module uh, when he wasn't uh, happy with some of the results, and you know Ed White being a West Point man, and um, you know and what that meant to him, and then you know a cool story about Roger Chaffee. It was just really incredible. And and how I think you may have been here for that when he gave that really cool talk of. Uh, but he, he carved out like a, like a minute or two and just really painted a picture of the crew. And, um, you know, just they just sounded like amazing guys. Like you, Chris, we, you know, in our jobs, we have the privilege of meeting a, a, a lot of interesting people. I, I honestly don't think I've ever met an astronaut who I wouldn't say was an amazing person. Yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. There's, uh, unfortunately, or, or maybe, maybe it's just barely routine enough that... Uh, that we we don't notice as much as we do then, but they you know they're not on the cover of Life magazine and they're not uh, necessarily the the rock stars that they were uh, in the '60s. But but still, there's uh, there there will always be a little extra you know sort of flutter in 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 my heart when I shake the hand of somebody who's uh, who's flown a mission into space. One of the things that uh, that isn't clear in this. Uh... It, it, by the way, we're going to talk about this a lot more as the, as the series goes on. But the the source material for the Apollo 13 movie was a book written by Jim Jim Lovell called Lost Moon, and uh, he talks about the uh, the night that Apollo the Apollo one fire happened, and he was actually at the time uh, was in uh, uh, Washington D.C. He was at a White House dinner where um, uh, different uh, 
embassies and things were sending people over to meet uh, returning, you know, the returning Gemini crews. And since he was on the last Gemini crew, he was uh, he, he was there as a guest. And uh, when they had gotten back to the hotel that they stayed at, there everybody had a red message light on their thing saying, call NASA and find out what was going on. Uh, they were, he said at the time, they were all worried that uh, – they they just wanted to get through this pre-flight checkout the, the 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 dress rehearsal because it was such a mess of a ship they just wanted to get the they really wanted to get the the dress rehearsal over they wanted to get the flight over and then pretty much forget about this mission that's how bad things were it was all kind of a uh not spoken of directly but everybody felt this was a bad news ship you know the the sad part about it was is that you know they all they all knew that this had a lot of potential there but with the go fever that was going on, it was difficult. And there was nobody there to say stop. And uh, in reading the Lost Moon, you get a lot of feelings of the remorse of, of, of what the fire did to NASA and internally. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, it's, it's almost like the stages of grief. There was a lot of anger. And uh, it, they managed to turn that anger into resolve, which was a great uh, positive turn for the whole organization and got them a little bit focused better on the safety aspect and getting it right instead of getting it fast. Well, did you ever hear the Gene Kranz speech that he gave um, to his crew, uh, you know, just days after the fire to, you know, Gene went in mission control, you know, flight director, and he kind of gave him a speech about the fact that, you know, we're never going to lose a crew again due to something that, you know, that we did. And he, you know, kind of gave this promise that you're going to go back and write tough and competent uh, your your boards back at your consoles, and that's how we're going to do our jobs from now on. It's a really inspiring speech, and he he still remembers it to this day, word for word. He can he can recite it on the spot. Well, isn't that amazing? You, you know, Jim, when you were talking about uh, the Go Fever, um, it's you know it resonates strongly because there's a you know there's a thing sort of in the in the pilot world uh, called get there itis. and it's uh, it's when you you know you you've you're flying or you've flown somewhere. And, you know, and talking primarily about, you know, private flying and things like this, uh, where you're, you're a single pilot making decisions on their own and uh, and how you're, you're you're anxious to get home. But maybe the weather isn't so great. You're you're you think you've got enough fuel, but you might be stretching it a little bit. And these little things start adding up. But um, but there's a there's this driving force that 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 wants you to start to um, cut corners a little bit for want of a better term, and and get there and, you know, get home or get to your destination or, you know, where whatever it is. You don't want to land somewhere short of where you're going because you don't have a rental car there, you don't have a hotel there, whatever these things, these pressures might be. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's something that we talk about extensively and very seriously when we're training new pilots. And, uh, and, and it's something that we're always looking out for in ourselves. And so it's fascinating to think about that same attitude and that same mindset but rather than in an individual flight sort of translating it to an entire program an entire sort of institution like uh like what the space program was at that point and i mean we we look at this from uh, the the middle part of this uh this film we go from the apollo 1 fire 18 months later it's an entirely different organization i mean nasa like like you were saying chris that they, they took Krantz's words to heed and it became so important to get it all right. Everything, everything that was built in the flight was to get it right for the next flight. So you had, you know, Apollo Seven going into Earth orbit, testing everything out to make sure that the command module systems were working. 
Apollo 8, which was originally going to test the uh, uh, the lunar module, but actually became a man-rated test of the Saturn V going to the moon. Um, then Apollo 9, we get to uh, test the lunar module in Earth orbit. Apollo 10 is basically Apollo 11 without the lunar landing. I mean, they get within 50,000 feet on the same flight. They're going to land. In the, it's like they're landing in the Sea of Tranquility. And they just, you know, they do an abort 50,000 feet over the surface, which must have really just, I, I can't imagine being that close and saying, oh, never mind. <laughs> um, I actually talked to Gene Cernan about that before he passed. And um, he said, you know, they, they pulled me into a room one day and they said, now, now Gene, don't land on the moon. And he said, well, yeah, I know that's not our mission. And they said, no, Gene. Like, we mean it. Don't land on the moon. <laughs> and he said, and they said they trusted me, but then when the time of the, you know, the mission, real heavy planning came along, they short-fueled my lunar module, so you couldn't land on the moon anyway. And uh, he says, but uh, I remember them pulling me in. The, they, were, they were concerned I was going to do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, you've met these guys, and I could see them accidentally. Uh, <laughs> well, I had to land on the moon, you know, it was right there. Yeah, um, it, was, it was right there. <laughs> I just, I can't imagine... Uh, the circumstances under which you need to tell somebody don't land on the moon (laughs) because because you're capable of doing it and otherwise you might but uh, but it it may have been the first time that sentence was ever ever uttered in the history of humanity (laughs) right no don't land on the moon and and certainly the last one since (laughs) yeah that's for sure (laughs) but uh yeah just i I mean that was apollo 10 was a was a fantastic flight that that showed the way to do i mean neil armstrong and and buzz aldrin would not have been able to land on the moon if they without all the data that had come back previously of how to do it so we we wind up you know the 18 months flew by and as walter cronkite explains (laughs) that uh uh They've, they've landed on the moon. We're at the, we're in the night of July 20th, Sunday night. I can remember it. Gosh, it's, I mean, this is coming up on 50 years as we're recording this. I feel like it happened a couple of weeks ago. I, I can remember, I can remember those days. I remember the flights of, uh, the flight of Apollo 11. And I can remember being at my cousin's house, the, uh, like about a day and a half after it would have been a Thursday or Friday. And swimming in my cousin's pool in his backyard in an above ground pool and getting out and looking at a video image of Earth live. Like they were showing the Earth from Apollo 11 and, you know, just looking at it and thinking, that's us. That's that's us out in the middle of space. And there it is on a summer day, uh, you know, seeing seeing the planet Earth in its entirety about the size of, uh, well, as, as Tom Hanks will show later, it was about the th- size of your thumb. And here we are on Sunday night, July twentieth, watching, uh, which apparently is filmed on the back of a motorcycle as it's as it's uh, lane lane uh, riding, and we get to see uh, the first title card of uh, of Tom Hanks driving that uh, that beautiful red Corvette. I you know I I didn't find out did Jim Lovell actually have a red Corvette? Was that his color car? He, he did. Um, I believe he did. I'd have to check it out for sure. He definitely had a Corvette. Um, I have. Uh, um, I thought I saw in one reference that they got the color wrong, but then I saw somewhere that it was right. So I'd, I'd have to check on the color, but uh, he certainly did have uh, that era Corvette, though. Okay. Uh, a lot of them did. It was actually a GM. Um, it was a smart, a smart guy. The, the local uh, dealer uh, owner got in, involved and said, uh, "You know, look, everybody's going to pay attention to what these guys are driving, and we should be there." So he, uh, GM, endorsed it and said, "Sure." And uh, what they did, it was like a lease. You got to, uh, 
you, he, they, each astronaut got a choice of two cars, uh, and basically their wives would take one and they would take the other. And, um, of course, most of them took the high-performance Corvette at the time. Yeah. Um, and- the only two astronauts that I know of that did not were John Glenn, who had a station wagon, and Frank Borman, who had a pickup truck. Um, wow. Doesn't that just seem so... You so perfectly, John Glenn. I mean, all I picture is Ed Harris, and you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and making the the you know the all American sensible sensible choice, and and Frank Borman. I mean, that's like a, that's yeah. a yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you're living in the West. You got to have yourself a pickup truck. Got to have a pickup truck. Exactly. And to be honest, and true to Frank's character, Frank, um, he never bought into he he didn't buy into that. He said he said I, that wasn't why I was there. Uh, Apollo Eight was a Cold War mission, and I was there to fly a Cold War mission. He really, I mean, even like the whole stigma about pilots wearing big watches, he was very adamant. He showed me his watch, and it was just a small watch, and he says, I never believed in that whole, you know, pilots have to wear big watches, flashy stuff, and just just not his style. Uh, now, Chris, did you take your watch off and hide it when he showed you? <laughs> yeah, I didn't even have a watch. I, I used my okay. iPhone. So. Yeah, okay. Yes. <laughs> I, uh, I just have a sundial I strap to my wrist. Yeah. So, you know, it's the... Uh... <laughs> Just notches on the dashboard, I understand. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so we go back to uh, 1960. We have been listening to 1995, Walter Cronkite narrating all this. And we go back to 1969, Walter Cronkite with his super special gold tie. He usually wore like a black tie, but you can obviously tell this was a major history event. So he wore a very colorful tie that day, which is very unlike Walter. Walter was very buttoned down. Oh, I, so forgive me for interrupting. I didn't realize that uh, I, I just I hadn't listened to it with that year in mind but didn't realize that was uh, that was 1995 Walter Cronkite doing new narration that wasn't just all contemporary stuff yeah he had there were you know a couple of cartons of Marlboros in between that yeah. were making that noise difference um, <laughs> so they go back to uh, they go back to 1969 Walter and as as I mentioned to Chris uh, in yesterday's episode I was and this is going to cause a lot of consternation but I was not a Walter fan Walter talked through everything he talked through the landing he talked through man on the moon he i i i i was i was strictly if i'm gonna watch it i'm gonna watch uh, uh frank reynolds and uh, jules bergman on abc and uh, the backup there would be uh huntley brinkley on um, on nbc with uh, frank mcgee as their science editor um it was you know i appreciate these guys these guys walter cronkite knew everything there was to know about uh the space program he was intimately involved with all the astronauts doings i've actually and i think i mentioned this yesterday i've ha- i have swum with walter cronkite i was in a i was in a pool in uh in Cocoa beach once during the apollo 10 missions and he was doing laps in the pool and it just my mom pointed out that was Walter Cronkite. So it was, oh, wow. um, now let's but, get uh, out of his yard before he calls us. Yes, yes. You're rotten that. kids. Get <laughs> off my lawn. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, he's, I mean, very nice guy, very knowledgeable yeah. man, but I just didn't want to listen to him while history was happening. And uh, he was, you know, and he had, he had Wally there for a, uh, uh, Wally Chirac would, would, would give some uh, color commentary. It was, he was the Howard Cosell to uh, Wally's Dandy Don. So, um, he did a good job, but some it was for other people. So we we cut to that and uh, Kevin Bacon getting very suggestive with a long neck bottle of beer. Yes, it's easy, Kevin Bacon. <laughs> yes. um, you know, it's it's funny, Jim. We talk about your recollections of this uh, of the event and seeing it on the news and things, and it's you know the, the the you and I are not very far apart in age, and Chris is a bit younger, but but not not to the point where where we wouldn't all three just feel like peers. 
you know, getting together over a <laughs> over a long necked bud, which will never happen in my lifetime. <laughs> but uh, um, but it's it's funny. I was alive uh, at the time of the moon landing, but I was oh. uh, I was a year and two months old, and so don't have memories of it. I can remember. I remember like Skylab and Apollo Soyuz is about where I came in, so I still have a glimpse of Apollo in my history. Um, but that's a, uh, you know, as I said, amongst an otherwise uh, a close knit peer group, I think that's a powerful differentiator um, in that, uh, you know, yeah, cultural I, I, differentiator. Do you remember the moon landing or was it just a, a fact you grew up with? Yeah, it's one of those things that I'm one of the few people that remembers what a full moon looks like because you, know, you guys have just seen the ones that the astronauts have taken back part of it so it's it's been <laughs> you know, what a ripoff man what a gyp i feel gypped yeah <laughs> yeah let's send that moon yeah. dust back yeah it it was it was it was a great time to be alive i mean it was it was history was being happened but happening but i think what it, what happened there is that people realized history was happening people saw this and thought this is a change in human history. Human civilization will always be between the time before we stepped on the moon and after we stepped on the moon. Right. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a different world. And, you know, it, it, you look at these things and it's, gee, they did the same thing. They brought home beer. They had parties. They, uh, they got together and watched stuff to, you know, watched events together. They but, got slightly uh, skeezy in front of the girls. Yeah. Kevin yeah. Bacon. So never invite the bachelor astronaut over. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, or Kevin Bacon for that. Uh, or Kevin Bacon. Anyway. <laughs> if we ever have Kevin Bacon on, we'll have to delete that comment. <laughs> yes, yes, we didn't say that, Kevin. We really like you. I mean, Kevin, you know, Mr. Oh. Footloose. He and he, I mean, Kevin Bacon has become the icon of the connectedness of the world. Oh yeah. He, you know, the the, uh, the the Kevin Bacon thing. I have never done mine. I have a feeling that I can get there through. Uh, since since my small part in uh, Logan's Run, I have a feeling I can get to him through Michael York somehow. But I have a feeling it would have to go through um, Three Musketeers, and I don't know. I'll have to I'll have to figure that out someday before this show is over. I will. I haven't I, will. Yeah, I haven't done mine in a while either. But uh, how does I know it it's count? Not many. Does it count that we had Mark Harmon on the Green Dot? Could we do it that way? Ooh. Oh sure, yeah. Because it might be a little easier. We can. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty. A, uh, we can have a little bacon number. That's uh, that yeah. is a pretty easy pretty easy jump. Yeah. Well, or maybe through Animal House. There might, well, I did meet Dan Aykroyd once, but that's not a, yeah. But yeah, he was in there. Uh, there's nothing to see here. That all is well. Um, oh, that's right. So, and he's been in so many, so many great films. But anyway, hopefully, we can have Mr. Bacon on to, to talk about being uh, being Jack Swagger in this movie. Um, what he's talk, what he's talking about here, getting behind, <laughs> besides talking to a you know a, a gal in an orange, uh, I don't know what kind of top that is, but. Uh, <laughs> He's talking about the term pro- is snug. It's what you're snug, looking for. Yes. yes. Well, well, well fitting. But he's talking about probe and drogue, which was the common way of, you know, thinking about connecting two ships in space is is a difficult task. I mean, you've got two different, you know, there's nothing to push against, so it's kind of hard. You have to be able to attach without or, you know, the, the thing that you bump into is going to back off because you've you've tapped it like so many billiard balls. And uh, that uh, that probe and drogue that he's probe and drogue that he's talking about is um, it, it's a, a thing that sticks out of the front of the command module, having three latches. Uh, it went through a center drogue, and then the latches uh, were activated by a nitrogen gas pellets that uh, that move the latches from their cocked into the lock position. Then it pulled the whole lunar module toward the uh, command module, so it would be, and then it would form 
uh, a tight pressure seal at the at the head, which is a difficult thing to do. I mean, you're going from vacuum to being able to trust it to allow an atmosphere in there. You know, um, there's not many pickup lines that also serve as science lessons. That's true. So yeah. maybe we we ought to salute Kevin Bacon. <laughs> yeah, we need to. Yeah, we need to hang out more and start making those up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. See, the thing is, honey, this is how it works. Yeah. Uh, but all in all, a very well uh, educational minute. Or, or something. <laughs> on several levels, yes. yes. on several levels. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How um, to succeed uh, in life yeah. and elsewhere. Well, this this minute kind of ran long, but I think I think we had a lot to cover. There were a lot of things going on in this particular minute. But, uh, but Hal, thanks for being part of the show again. Oh, it's my <laughs> pleasure. That's, uh, and, thanks, uh, Hal. I'm talking to you from... Another floor away here. Yeah, as you say, we're in the same building, but you're you're what at least a hundred yards away or more. Is it's, there a it's very wonderful. Like I, so. Yeah, I mean, I you know, yeah. I can't see you, so yeah. Well, it, yeah. See, the internet brings people closer together. That's why exactly. <laughs> it does. I'll see you in the parking wow. lot. <laughs> yeah. All right, and we'll settle wow. this once and for all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, let's talk a little bit more about this tomorrow. This is a uh, uh, this is a great a great stopping point, sort of, because there's, we're going to keep talking with uh, Tracy. I think is her name. So uh, we'll, we'll have some more discussions with Tracy here. If you'd like to join us and you missed the first episode, go out to Apollo13Minute.com and pick up uh, yesterday's episode. You can also find us on iTunes and Google Play. Hopefully it's uh, attached to to our uh, RSS feed so you can download them. But uh, sign up for it on, on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you find podcasts or uh, give away. Uh, and uh, join us here tomorrow when we talk some more uh, with Tracy uh, here on the Apollo 13 Minute. Looks like we're coming up on uh, Wilson Signal in 30 seconds. See you tomorrow on the Apollo 13 Minute.